0: Welcome to the Home Team Podcast, hosted by Sam Ponder, Sam Ocho, and myself, Steve Carter. Each week, we try to kind of chop it up about the intersection of faith, sports, culture, and family. And with everything that has been transpiring in our world due to COVID-19 and and literally no sports outside of The Last Dance, um, we have just been sharing our stories and over the past couple of weeks, you've heard Sam ponders some defining moments in her life and some defining moments in Sam Macho's life. And uh, I was hoping I was going to get a pass. Uh, but today, today, you'll get to hear a little of my story. Sam Macho, take it away.
1: What was it like? Because I think a lot of people either deal with this or or think about it. What What, what was it like growing up during those times? You talked about this issue of identity of like, man, like identity and achievement. If I do these things, then I'll be loved growing up. I mean, I get as a kid trying to understand and perceive that, but even going into high school and we talk about in college and even young adult, what, how did that play out?
0: Yeah, no. So I, I grew up in Southern California. Uh, My mom had me pretty young and um, actually when I was born, my name was Stephen Charles Bourne. Uh Charles was my biological father's name. Um his my my biological father's dad uh was a uh multi-star general and went to West Point was like an all-American in football. Um so like super like dedicated leader. He's actually buried at West Point. Has uh my biological dad and um and this guy is like didn't want anything to do with the military and um, had met various um, women, had uh, kids with uh, different women um, and got married to my mom. Uh, My mom's pretty young, has me. And by the time I was two, uh, he was gone. And so uh, we're living um, pretty close to USC and if you if you know um, USC, the university's beautiful, but if you get pretty far outside of USC, um, it's not so beautiful but my my dad and my mom were property property managers of an apartment complex. and so uh, my biological father like took care of all the kind of maintenance and handled everything. so he pieces out, and my mom's kind of like, "Oh no, like what's this mean? And so uh, calls the kind of the president of this property management firm and kind of like explains the situation. My mom, um, she she grew up in the projects in New York. She's a Southpaw. Like she she can walk into a room and like own it. Like I I always say I was a I grew up as an introvert, um, but I learned how to be extroverted because of my mom. And she just could own a room, and. So she calls, takes this like like has this conversation with the this property manager, like president, and the guy says, no, you're I'm not going to kick you out. Um, you just keep collecting checks and i'll I'll have one of my workers come over, and he'll make sure everything's taken care of so this guy starts coming over, and he and my mom like start kind of. Uh, digging, I guess, each other. And uh, again, no faith background at this time. Um, But by the time I was four, they get married. And my first memory that I have ever had that I could like literally tell you, um, just like I could set the entire scene was in a courthouse in Malibu. And um, I'm meeting with a judge and I'm being asked questions about my old dad. And my new dad, and I'm and I'm just sitting here like like, uh, and this guy's got like all these wind up toys. She's winding them up, and you know they're just like da 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 da. And he's like, so tell me about your old dad. And then he winds up the toy da 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 da. And I and I just I was like I don't I don't really I don't really know him. Um, every once in a while he calls, but I don't I don't really know him. Um, what about your new dad? And I'm like, oh he's amazing. Like he comes over, we play Matchbox cars and um and and so. You know, he said, "Do you want him to be your new dad?" And I, I didn't, I didn't know really what was going on. I'm four and a half years old, and I'm like, "Yeah," and I, I I like him a lot. And they said, "Okay, well, you know, you're gonna get a new last name, and you're gonna get a new middle name." And I said, "Okay." And they said, "Like, what, what do you want your middle name to be?" My mom had prepped me for this, like, "You can choose any middle name that you want." And I was like, "Awesome." And so she kept asking me, like, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And, and I, I just said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm just going to tell the judge. And so when the judge asked me, no joke, uh, what do you want your middle name to be? I said, Poncherella. Um, because I was a huge Chips fan. I, and my mom was like, no, 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 it's going to be Ryan. Um, but all I know is, like, I left that day with a new middle name a new last name and a new dad. And, and then we moved from like LA to Ventura County, which is, you know, it's like soccer moms and Volvos, you know, like it just was like, it was suburbia. 45 minutes from LA, it was, you know, near the coast. It, it was just different. And so we moved to Camarillo and we were this family of three. We were the Carters now. And my mom had had a bad experience in public schools in New York. And so she said, I'm putting you in a parochial school. And um, I got thrown into this school that was, um, it was like I started in preschool and it felt like it went to community college and there was like a church connected to it. I mean, it was like its own like world. And I just went there. Um, I yet always had these questions about who's Chuck. Um, does he ever think of me? Um, and my home life was, was an absolute mess. Uh, my parents were really, really hardworking people and they didn't know Christ. Um, and so there was just a lot of tension, a lot of anger, um, just a lot of brokenness. And yet I'd go to this school and this school was like, um, it was like this refuge. And I remember like in seventh grade, like I, I was playing basketball and there's high school students and I was pretty decent in sports. And so I, like, I'm playing with the high schoolers and, and there were these two guys, Dominic and Nathan, and they went by the name Dominate, which is just so awesome to me. Um, <laughs> and Dominic came up to me, he's a junior in high school. And, and to be honest, these were like the first like Christ followers I ever knew. And they, they just were funny. They loved sports. They were leaders. They just were good guys. And after playing basketball, Dominic walked up to me and said, hey, Carter. And I didn't even think he knew who I was. And I, I was like, yeah. And he goes, do you want to learn how to dominate life? And I was like, what? Yeah. And Dominic and Nathan just started picking me up. And like, we'd go play basketball, we'd go to In-N-Out, which is, um, it's like where the Shekinah glory of God descends in burgerly form, if you've never experienced a burger there. And they would just start asking me questions like about life, um, just yeah, about, about faith. And, and in seventh grade, I just started like riding my bike to church. My parents were really, like, they, were, they were open um, to me just being a good kid. Like maintaining the name Carter, well, being a good athlete, being a good person, being a good student, but there was no, there was no conversations of faith, and I just started either getting dropped off at church or like riding my bike, and you know, a few months later, I am sitting in a Sunday morning service by myself, and I'm just there, and the pastor says, "Hey, I, anyone want to say yes to Christ?" And I, I like, I'm like, I think that's what Dominic and Nathan have. They seem happy. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I have what they have. I want what they have. And then the pastor said, well, if anyone said yes, then they should come forward and get baptized. And I was like, what? And then I start, like, I, like, look around, and nobody's going up. And he's like, I think that there's someone here. And does the super delayed, like, you know, keys are playing, like, in this moment— and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I'm hearing God. I don't know. So literally, I look down, and on my shirt, it just says, just do it. Like the Nike shirt, because that's all I wore. And I was like, I think this is God. And I just, like, literally make my way down front, and I, I get baptized. And and Dominic and Nathan hear about this, and and they're, the first thing they say is, like, that's awesome, man. Now you got to go after your parents. And I'm like, what? Like, what are you talking about? So uh, long story short, my senior year high school um, – my mom says yes to Christ, and my sophomore year of college, I'm like a, a backup at Cal State Fullerton, go Titans. Uh, I was like red shirting and uh, playing, uh, not really playing, but getting free shoes, and um, EA Sports didn't count Cal State Fullerton as like a D1 basketball team, so we're in like 989 sports, but it's cool. It's still a good game. Um, but anyways, I, I uh, on my 19th birthday, my sophomore year of college, like um, – my dad comes to faith and he gets baptized and I get to baptize him. And so this guy, I kid you not, like um, before Christ was just a an angry man, like walked, I mean, he, he did business in LA. I mean, he was a, he just was an intimidating fact, figure. I mean, he's an offensive lineman. I mean, he's just a big guy, carried a briefcase, inside the briefcase was like a loaded 357. Like it just, you just, I could tell by when he picked me up from school if I could talk to him on the way home, which is crazy because like I learned how to read a room because I learned from my dad walking, can I talk to him or should I just stay quiet? Should I just grab my basketball and go to the, go to the park? So um, all this is like happening. And yet at the same time, like I'm like, man, this is crazy. Like God has just moved from my my mom and my dad. But I still, like, if you back up many, many years, um, I still had wondered about Chuck. And um, you know, I, I'm like a 5'11, uh, I don't really have a jump shot. I was way better in soccer. Um, but the reason I chose basketball was I read Mitch Album's Fab Five book. And there was a whole section on Jalen Rose. And you guys, you guys probably know this, but like Jalen never really knew his dad. And the first time Jalen Rose's dad ever saw him, his dad, Jimmy Walker, who was a, used to play for the Pistons, was working out at a YMCA. And all of a sudden, like this guy next to him goes, dude, Michigan's pretty good. And he goes, yeah, I think that kid's my, my son. And it's the first time he ever saw Jalen Rose. And first time he ever sees his son. So I read this like in sixth or seventh grade. And in my mind, I'm like, that's how Chuck's gonna find me, is playing basketball. So I dedicate everything to playing basketball so that this guy someday can find me. And again, like I've said multiple times in this episode, like, uh, podcast, like kids are very perceptive. They're just crappy interpreters of reality. Like I perceived, oh, something. And the way that I interpreted it was, he'll find me if I play basketball. Nobody was watching Cal State Fullerton play basketball. And it, and it hit me as a sophomore in college, sitting on the bench. Um, Chuck's not going to find me. And then I'm watching my new dad, Joel, um, and my mom come to faith. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? So my parents end up like deciding after my sophomore year of college to move to Grand Rapids, Michigan and um, I, I was like, what? We're leaving the West Coast? We're leaving like Southern California? Why would we go to Grand Rapids? My dad just said, hey, I feel like God told me that I need to go restore a, relation, restore a relationship with my folks. So he sells everything. He sells like out of his company, he sells everything, and they pack everything up and they move to Grand Rapids. I just felt this sense like I needed to go with them. And so I, I, I give up basketball. I go, and I'm a film major at this time. My dream is like uh, to either be in SNL, to write like stories, or to kind of do Sports Center. That, it's like one of those three things are, are what I'm, I'm thinking my life will be. And we go to Grand Rapids, and there's this church that started called Mars Hill, and it's meeting in a homeschool building. And I don't know anybody in Grand Rapids. Like I don't know a soul outside of my grandparents, but I don't know anybody. My best friend in California, Tommy was like, hey, there's this quirky guy named Rob. He started this church. I think you'll like it. it's called Mars something. And I show up at a homeschool building and I get turned away by a fire marshal. There's too many people in a homeschool building, which first of all, like it's a homeschool. How does it have a building? It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, But for three weeks I show up like Southern California, 10 minutes late, skipping out on worship a little bit. And I, I keep getting turned away. And finally I sneak in and there's this pastor and he's just going verse by verse through the book of Leviticus. And I'm like, what in the world, what is going on in here? And it's just packed. And I just got hooked. It was like the first time like I heard someone actually translate stories to everyday life. The best way I know to describe it is, you know, Sugar Hill Gang was like a hip hop, hippie to the hip. Like it was so just like, you're just happy. And then all of a sudden NWA comes on the scene and they're speaking about actual life in South Central. And I felt like there was this disconnect. I go to church and I'm like, I mean, I get these platitudes, but I don't understand how it actually hits my everyday life. And this guy just did it. And I remember going, that's what I've always wanted to do, is to tell stories. This guy's like dominate on like a larger scale. And so um
2: slowly but surely it just I just started moving into that direction. And Steve, when you're going through this process, because there's some there's some major shifting happening here, did you have somebody helping direct you through all this or or were you kind of navigating it all alone?
0: A little of both. I I I honestly there was this amazing um just mentor in my life. His name is Hal. And Hal is just um was just special. And he he just uh, kind of mentored me from uh, from in my high school years and and in college uh, was just fantastic and and really, I feel like God surrounded me with some great people um, i think I think part of me having one dad leave having a new dad um, I think i I found just uh, my identity in performance and achievement in um, if I did well then uh, I felt like there was more peace and shalom at home, and if I didn't do well, then I felt like, oh my goodness, like I'm just gonna upset everybody. Um, and so there were some mentors that were really, really helpful. Um, and so Hal was one. Then obviously Rob at Mars um, became one, and and just slowly but surely, it just there just became this um, real kind of bunch of coaches uh, who were just really helping me. I feel like spiritually, helping me emotionally, helping me mentally, um, just kind of step into this new, I don't know, realm of like, we think you should do this. It's it's It was one thing where I think, uh, I, I didn't want to do it because I'm like, there's no money here. I was so Southern California image driven. I'm like, there's no money. There's, I'm not going to be able to make it. Um, but I feel like these voices called something out of me that I wasn't trying to achieve. They just saw it. And I felt like I, I actually trusted them more than I trusted myself. So that was super, super helpful for me. I mean, the first time my dad told me he loved me was my last high school basketball game um, that, you know, I go for, I like the best game of my life, game of my life. And we lose. And he, he says, I love you. You played so well. And so part of it is like I lost. Part of it is I played the best I've ever played and I'm hearing words that I've been searching for my whole life, you know? So I think think in some sense, like you you end up realizing uh, there were these internal motivators looking for approval, looking for um, affirmation, looking for some sense of you're okay. But I think more than anything, looking for someone to say, I'm not gonna leave you. Because that was the story in my head that like Chuck left, and I must have done. I must have not been good enough.
2: So how do you know, Steve, when you're trying to figure out what your calling is, if if you call it that? Um, the difference between calling to lead people in self-sacrificial ministry that just happens to be the guy standing in front of the church preaching. And our, I think, natural desire for a position of power and influence and um, a position where you get approval, because that all kind of comes with that whole leading a church thing too. How do you know the difference?
0: Yeah. That's no, a, really a really good question. I, I, I think I probably looked at it more in the vein of, well, it, I'm not going... For a career in movies, like I'm not going for SNL, so this feels really healthy. Like I, I like I think I was felt like I was like tuning it down a little bit, um, and I, I just didn't really think. I mean, again, this is like a world pre-social media. I mean, I guess it was MySpace, but like there was there wasn't there wasn't the piece of celebrity that I feel like there is today. Um, I just think like. It was a, yeah, I I'm gonna go hang out with with students, and I'm gonna go like just be like Dominic and Nathan were for me. and I think I was super just uh, pretty naive uh, and disconnected from how my past and my wounds and my story um, were both an incredible gift to the role of empathy and pastoring and also that need for oh do these people like me did i fail did i it, all of that but i just didn't think like oh i'm choosing jesus it's going to be easy like i just i think i was pretty naive and you know i was 19 20 years old when i'm i'm figuring this stuff out but i i end up like going back to california i go back to a, a school right across the street from Cal State Fullerton called Hope International University I end up majoring in in biblical studies with an emphasis on preaching, still paying student loans back right now. But um, while I'm there, the pastor in Michigan um, had gone to um, Israel and Palestine and had been pulled aside by this just incredible teacher. And the guy just said, hey, Jesus didn't change the world by speaking to the masses. He changed the world by having disciples. So who are you pouring your life into? And Rob looked at his wife. And they didn't have an answer. And he, the guy just said, well, you should think about it. And so they, they prayed about it. And somehow my name came up. And, and so on the flight home, they landed at the Grand Rapids airport and they call me. And, and he just says, hey, I believe in you. I think you have what it takes. I want you uh, to graduate as fast as you can. Come live in my basement. I'll teach you everything I know. And let's change the world one West Michigan at a time. I was like, what? And I had been praying for like, some kind of mentor, some kind of opportunity, and so I graduated super quickly, moved, lived in that dude's basement. The family opened their life to me um, the church like exploded um, and I just got to see what this whole thing was about and um and i I thought I would just be there for a year and then jump off to seminary and keep studying, um, but I ended up staying there seven years and Um, From there, went back to California and was at a church for a number of years. Um, And then most recently was in Chicago, and that's where I met Acho um, at a church called Willow Creek. And it was kind of this crazy ride because I was in three really influential churches, um, large, and I I think I was always like second or third best player, um, total Horace Grant. um, And I just, I enjoyed it. like I loved the chance to be with people. Um, but I think each place taught me something. I think at Mars Hill, I learned this compelling why. At Rock Harbor, I learned about the Holy Spirit. And, just, and then um, at Willow, I, I really, I think, were able to put it all together um, and really discover, like, this is who I am. This is, this is my sound. This is what I love. This is what I can bring. And so, yeah, so I was there, and I was there s- almost seven years and, um, was kind of in this whole succession plan. And this kind of probably where the story gets a little, little crazy, but, um, I had been myself and another person had been named as co successors of, of Willow Creek. And I mean, I kid you not, it was just a dream job.
2: Sorry to interrupt here, but Steve, for people who aren't in that world and and don't know much about it. Can you give us a, a picture of what that place is and why it's significant?
0: Yeah. So Willow, um it's about a 40 plus year old church, 25,000 people. I mean, it's, people would say, you know, in the 90s and 2000s and it was, you know, top 5 most influential churches in the world. We had a leadership conference every year that was in 140 different countries. I mean, reaching half a million people. I mean, it just It it was a a leadership factory, and it was all centered around um, my mentor and just this amazing, amazing leader who had been there for 40-plus years, and people loved him. And and so he had invited me to kind of work for him, learn leadership from him, and then basically said, I think you and another person – um, are the two to take this thing over. And I'm like, what? Like, you want to give me your, no way. A- and, and so then it just kind of like stepping into this opportunity. Um, and it was a dream job. It was a city I loved. It's a congregation I loved. I'm just doing great stuff, like getting to preach on, on the biggest stage ever. Like I with a team I loved, um, a neighborhood I loved, next to, you know, doing stuff with the bears. I mean, I was just, it, everything worked. Like I could talk sports. I could talk faith. I could, it just was a perfect fit. And then, um, I, uh, get a phone call one day and I had like released, I had sent in my manuscript for my second book and my editor calls me and's like, Hey, um, do you think you want to add another chapter to your book? I'm like, what? Like, why do you not like, th- like the book? Again, like super like insecure guy, like you didn't like it. You want me to add another chapter? She's like, no, 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 it's great. It's great. Um, but do you think you want to like add another chapter about when a leader falls? I was like, what? No, like, and the whole book was based on second Timothy. It was based on Paul and Timothy's relationship. And it was going to come out during the time of the succession and the handing of the baton. And so I'm like, in many ways, this was my treatise to say thank you to my mentor. And I'm like, I don't know. I'll think and pray about it. So I get off the phone. I go into another meeting, but it's like bothering me because my editor's an eight. Like she, she's clear. She tells you what she thinks. But now it just felt like peanut butter. Like, I didn't know, like, what is she implying? So I, I leave the meeting and I just call her. I'm like, hey, you've always been super clear with me. Like, why do you need me to add another chapter? She's like, you don't know? I'm like, no what? You don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know about the story that's going to come out. What story about your mentor? I like, to this day, like that moment right there, it's like, an accident. Everything started to slow down. And I was like, what? In the Chicago Tribune, a Me Too story about your mentor. And I just said, I got to go. And I hung up. And that that just became this unraveling. Um, a month later, the Chicago Tribune released this story. And, you know, like, Organizations do, you know, you, you kind of circle the wagons and you begin to say, "Hey, this is, this is our story. This is what really happened," and it got real, and um, and yet something was really hard because this is a dream job, dream congregation, um, something I love, and yet it's my mentor, and it came to this point probably. Um, a few weeks later where I just was like, I got I to gotta find out if these stories are true. Um, and it just kind of led me um, on a journey that I went a little rogue, to be honest. And I'm not saying I did it the right way, but I just started calling the women. Uh, like I, I showed up at one of the women's house um, and just said, hey, I, I don't think I know your story. I had to sit and hear um, multiple women detail their story. And then I just, I just knew like, oh my goodness, like this is this changes everything. So that that just kind of led to a moment of me trying to fight for my job that I loved, stand up for the women, and try to get the church to do what I think the church does best is be honest human, tell a story of brokenness and talk about a need for Jesus and move towards reconciliation. And I didn't understand power structures. I didn't understand systems. I didn't, and again, I'm not saying I did it right. Um, I feel like as a teacher, Every time I get on stage, it's a conversation of trust. I'm either building trust or breaking trust. And I just, I had all of the influence in the community with no actual authority, which is the worst place for a leader to be in. So um, finally, on August 5th, 2018, 5 a.m., my phone blows up. They're like, Steve, have you read the New York Times? like all these texts are coming from the East coast. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And it's a story of a woman um, named Pat who just is coming forward with um, her story of abuse. And I read this and my heart just sank. And I just realized like, I can't get on that stage. And I was supposed to do an interview with uh, this American life, like at the church, I'm like, this is gonna be terrible. And Annie Downs was teaching who I just absolutely love. And um, so we go have this meeting and I just said, we have to come out and declare that we believe the women and you gotta call this stuff out. And nobody wanted to do it. and I, I got super sick. And I, I had already blogged on my own personal blog, like I Believe the Women. Like I had already stated certain things. I had already pushed. But it, it hadn't really changed anything. And so when I basically saw like nothing, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening to honor the bravery of this woman sharing her story. And I, I got sick to my stomach. And I walked into this like bathroom backstage. And I just, I just threw up. And I, I was like physically ill. And I looked in the mirror and I'm like washing my face. And when I put my son to bed every night, the last thing I've done it ever since he was a little kid, even before he could talk, I, I would just look at him and I'd say, Emerson, did you have integrity today? And you know, as he, as he got older, two years old, he'd say, yeah, dad. And I think I did. And then he'd go, dad, what about you? And I'm like, I think I did. He's like, okay. And that's how we end every night. And we're just talking about integrity because at the end of the day, like I don't care how much money I have. I not care what I have accomplished. At the end of the day, all you have is, did you say what you mean and mean what you say? Like, does your life live up to the value systems that you speak and believe in? And integrity is everything to me. And that's what Hal, my mentor, taught me. And so um, I had written a blog post the first time. Um, I, and I had gone to the elders at this church. And I just had written, like, I believe the women. I'm going to post this on my blog. I was like punk rock. Like, I thought I was, like, doing the right thing. And I still think I did. But, like, it was, it was a real tense meeting, super late at night. I returned home. And everybody's asleep. And um, I'm making myself... Um, A gin and tonic, I think, (laughs) um, because I was so cortisol to the max. I just was like, I can't believe I said this. I can't believe like I did this. And I hear this like pitter patter on the hardwood floor, and it's my son. And he just looks at me and goes, "Dad." And I'm like, "Yeah, bud." And he goes, "Did you have integrity today?" And I'm like, "I think I did. I think I did." And he goes, "I bet you did." And then he ran back to bed, and um. Um, it was the first time he ever asked me that question. And you fast forward a few months and I'm like throwing up and I look in the mirror and the first thing I think is my son looking at me when I get home and he goes, dad, did you have integrity today? And I go, if I go on that stage and I pretend like nothing's happened, I'm gonna have to lie to him or pray to God that he doesn't ask me that question. And so um, I walked out and just said, hey, I, I gotta go home. I just, I don't think I can do this. And, um, I felt like I had fought for the integrity of the bride. And again, I'm not saying I did it the right way. Um, I think some people think I did. A number of people think I didn't. Um, I just had to do what I felt like God was asking me to do. So I resigned and I resigned with the blog post and it yeah, it became a a crazy ordeal. It kind of became a little bit of like what your two lives are probably like, you know, Um, and news cameras at my house. And it was, you know, uh, people basically saying like, you're a coward. You you walked out on us. So like the church, a lot of the people in the congregation were like, they didn't see it. And I think they thought I had authority and influence, which I didn't have. Um, And I did fight for it. And I did try to do some things. And but people on the outside were like, thank you, finally someone's speaking up and standing with women. So it's just real, real hard spot. And deep down, all I wanted was my job. All I wanted was to pastor that congregation. All I wanted was to be like Chicago through and through. And it was gone overnight. And again, like just, just so that people know, like, the auditorium sat 7,200 seats. I'd never been paid better. All of that stuff, like, had it all. Like, there was favor in that place. And overnight, gone. And I never had enemies.
1: Steve, what did you feel? um, So, I just background. So, I went to Willow Creek. I, I came to Chicago, was trying to find a place to live. Some things important to me were, obviously, close to our facility, nice neighborhood, and hopefully close to a good church. Willow Creek had just started a a new campus literally right around the corner from where I lived. And so after were meeting in a the movie theater, I started going there from week two from me first moving to Chicago. So I'm familiar with the church. What were your emotions like when everything left, number one? And then number two, what, what did you feel sitting down? You said you went to one of the women's house and you heard her story. What did you feel?
0: So I'm a three on the Enneagram. And um, all a three wants to do is win. So what do you do when you can't win? There's no win. You take the side of your mentor, and you lose <laughs> um, integrity. You you take the side of women, and you lose your congregation, because you just in this sense of like absolute stuck. And a three goes to a nine, um, like basically goes to a place of feeling paralyzed in unhealth when they start to disintegrate. And I think I felt that. And I I think deep down, I was feeling like there's got to be a way. I had turned my basement into like Olivia Pope, like scandal. Like I had like, if you watch the show, like Every Woman, her story. I I was trying to basically figure this thing out. I'm gonna figure it out and I'm gonna be able to bring everyone to the table. Like I know these people, I'll be, I couldn't do it. And so I think I, I got, I just got to the end of my rope. And at the end of it, like, I think I felt like I just failed, to be honest. like, I failed people and I, uh, everything I'd worked for, it didn't go the way that I thought it was gonna go. And I thought I'd be there the next 25 years, you know? it just i think was so disruptive um i lived 2 minutes from the church and so you'd go into starbucks and people would start crying start yelling at me um or just wouldn't talk to me and i just i think sometimes we expect certain things like to happen in the business world but sometimes when they happen in a spiritual community they hold Wait because you're you're speaking about a value code and a moral system and like a way in which you're supposed to orient your life and and so it's very vulnerable and and again, not minimizing if someone's had a bad experience in the marketplace, but I think this was just people had given their lives to making this church what it was, and they did, and everything was just being turned upside down, and their expectations weren't being met and so um it really like in me, like I felt like I needed to find something that I could do to go achieve. Like maybe I need to go to San Francisco. Maybe I need to go to Miami. Like where can I go that's going to be better than Chicago? Where can I go to prove like what some of these people are putting on my social media wall and posts and DMing me and texting me and emailing me that I'm this and I'm a coward and blah, 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 like that I can prove no, 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 no. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt like God say to me, uh, go to the desert and wait for instructions. And I was like, what? And honestly, like, I know I'm a pastor, but like, this doesn't happen to me like where it feels that clear. Like um, I'll have senses. Like I feel like I'm supposed to like kind of move towards this or have a conversation, but this felt real. So I pulled out my journal and I just started writing and I felt like God say, you can't achieve your way out of this. You can only grieve your way through it. And I didn't have a muscle for grieving. I just started writing about that. And the next morning, I uh, made my wife some coffee. And I just said, hey, Sarah, you're not going to believe this. This is what happened. And she just teared up. And she just said, I've been sensing the same thing. And I just want to go home. And she's from like Phoenix, Scottsdale area. And I was like, crap, we're moving to Arizona. <laughs> and... um, and so we've been we've been here. I, I, know the now, feeling, I, know. I know the feeling i know the feeling steve and i, I came, came here with feeling, the man. you know you know it and i came here 15 months ago and didn't really know anybody and all i've been doing is like reading the desert mothers and desert fathers and um it has been one of the most healing seasons and i have no idea what like God's gonna do next. I mean, I travel and speak, well, used to until COVID, but like um, doing a lot of like that and writing and obviously the podcast and some coaching of communicators and stuff. But this whole season, I've always been, I think, quite innocent um, and like optimistic and hopeful. And this just wrecked it. And I think it's set the best parts of me free. And I've learned some muscles of grieving. Um, and then, like, put all of that and uh, a few months after I leave Willow, my dad dies. And, like, the past year has just been a year of, like, grieving um, and trying to make sense of what happened. Where did this go wrong, you know? And so so I think it's just – it's forced me to, like um, – Really, I think, look, are there places that I need to reconcile? Are there places that I need to um, own? Are there places that I need to forgive? Are there places that, um, and just keep slowly just trying to take the next best right step. Um, but it's it's uh, been a wild, wild few years.
2: Whew. Well, uh, first, let me just say thanks for sharing. I mean, I <laughs> I cried at least Three times.
1: Count me on um, that list.
2: I got angry, confused. I mean, I, that was an emotional roller coaster. I, okay. know. I, I <laughs> frankly did not know this story. I had heard bits and pieces, but when um, we kind of signed up to do this, I purposefully did not do a, a deep search on Steve Carter. Not because I wasn't interested in your life, but it was more that um, I wanted to get to know you on my own. And and I had secondhand trust. I mean, I wasn't going in blind. My, <laughs> my trust in Sam and in his discernment and wisdom basically vouched for you, not that, not that you care. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'm hearing this for the first time. And I gosh, I, I have a lot of thoughts. But um, first, I just want to say thank you for not just going along to get along Especially when there's a lot on the line and a lot to lose, and you like your life and you're in a good spot, and because um, I know that can't be easy. Um, the other thing that just, I mean, stands out to me so much, and maybe it's because I've I've been in a situation uh, where I can relate to these women. But um, thank you for doing something as simple and as what I would call obvious as just going to talk to the women. I don't know why that feels like it's something that needs to be applauded, but unfortunately, like in this day and age, it is. um, To put humanity to their stories and not just have them be, you know, nameless, faceless accusers, if you will, Um, that matters. And it matters to have someone in your position take the time to go do that. Um, thank you for your transparency and, um, honesty in all this. I know there they are murky waters and there's a, um, there's just a lot, there's a lot to it. It's not, it's not always black and white and it, uh, there are a lot of emotions and feelings and different people who are affected by this kind of stuff. Um, I guess what I want to know just processing all this is how you handle the moral failings if you will of someone who you love and and someone who you think you know deeply.
0: Yeah, that's real. I mean, that is the that's the struggle, you know? I mean, um his son-in-law is my best friend, you know? So you you just, it, like this guy has done more for my career than um few have you know so opened the door gave me trusted me and you know during this during this time where all this was picking up um what was a bizarre gift and please give me grace in the way I say this like obviously I've not rehearsed any of this like but like is that this was unfolding culturally as well this wasn't just a a conversation in the church like you you were unfortunately having to see this in every arena and sphere of life. And so um I'll remember Stephen Colbert was talking about Les Mohees and that he was like the in charge of CBS. And everyone wondered like what's Colbert gonna say? What's Colbert's monologue? Is he just gonna dismiss it? Is he gonna downplay it? What's he gonna say? And Colbert said, hey, let me just be really honest like there's been nobody who's done more for my career. I mean, when our first three months, the ratings were terrible and we didn't know our voice, this guy stuck with me. This guy had my back. This guy created opportunities. He gave us every opportunity to succeed. But here's the thing. He goes on this whole rant just like about like, if what these women are saying is true, it doesn't matter if he's my guy or not. Because what's the point accountability if it's not for every single person and that that really hit me because i think honestly uh he put to language what i was feeling and that's a hard that's a hard reality is um we are all accountable and none of us are perfect none of us are perfect but there's definitely like a line when someone's innocence or someone is manipulated or someone experiences abuse from a power point or sexual point like it's just it's I mean, there, there's no gray area there. It is just absolutely wrong. Um, but I think what was so hard was the human condition is to ask the question, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is just human. What does this mean for me? Not for the women, not for even the mentor. Like I think human, we go, what does this mean for me? What is this gonna mean for my life? What's it gonna mean for my career? What's it? And I think you, and then once you get out of that, most people then go, okay, my relationship, the structures. And you you have to just almost get outside of the system enough where you can just imagine looking at your son or looking at your daughter and thinking, God forbid, if they were in a situation, 25 years, what kind of coaching and advice would you give them? Which would be, go talk to the women. Like, Don't jump to a conclusion, go listen, and then do what is in your power. And I think sitting with those women, that's when everything just, I mean, hearing their stories and you just sat there and go, how did I not know this? How am I just hearing about this? How, Um, and I think that's uh, just broke my heart for them, for how much they had carried and endured. And also said, okay, I gotta do something on your behalf.
2: So, when something like that happens with someone who is a a spiritual leader and and for you, a mentor, I'm wondering how you keep yourself from from losing some of your own faith, maybe. I, I know I've made this mistake before of putting my faith in faithful people, um which is dangerous. We know that um, because then you you intertwine your own belief with you know, broken and imperfect people like we all are. So, how did you how did you keep yourself from kind of having a crisis of faith when something like this happens with someone who played that role in your life?
0: You know, Billy Graham's wife, I don't know if you've ever seen her tombstone. It's I love it. It's just like Ruth Bell Graham says her date of birth and, you know, date of passing and then underneath it it says construction completed. Thanks for your patience. And I love that, like on the tombstone, like construction completed, thanks for your patience. And like really deep down, she was naming something that um, I think I I learned from Hal and from Rob early on um, is that, you know, we're all in process, right? And so um, the closer you get to people, the, the more that you see their beauty and their brokenness. And both are true, right? And I think what's, what's so fascinating is, you know, how easy it is for us when you see someone who has supernatural gifts, supernatural gifts. We see it in sports, right? I, I think like someone who's so good never goes to class. Someone who's so good, but just as a cancer in the locker room like and sometimes it's so easy for us to let it slide cuz that's QB1 or that's you know our 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 shooting guard and and so we do this in sports i think it's unfortunate at times we do this in the church and sometimes when you've got a gift sometimes uh it's not always even the person who is standing on the stage that i think uh is wanting that i think it's sometimes the pressure that the room gives them and the opportunities that come. And, and again, um, Dave Chappelle signs a $50 million contract, season three, Chappelle show, episode five, bails. And I probably have mentioned this before because it's so meaningful to me, but like he finds himself on Oprah and he just says, and Oprah asks him, why did you just bail? And he just says, success can take you places that character can't sustain you. And I think we have to be the kind of people that say are, is my success going to lead the way or is my character? And I think when you get to a place where you're like, I want my character to lead the way, you you right there are saying, I'm broken. And I think, how do you get to a point where you're really, really honest? I think with all my mentors, all the people I've worked with, um, and I think probably because I didn't grow up in a Christian home, it's not like I, I esteemed the faith of my father or my mother. Like, um, I think I just, I saw people as, Broken and beautiful, and so, um, which gave me grace—grace grace for someone to say, "Like, I screwed up. Awesome. Let's now let's let's talk about that." This is this is what the 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 beauty of the Christian faith is all about. It's like we're all screw ups, and there's second and third and fourth and fifth chances, you know, and and me being at the front of the line. And so I think um, I think where it gets tricky is when someone wants to deny that place or wants to power up or wants to not actually have that honest conversation, then it gets just tricky. It's really, really hard. Um, I do think what was so sad in, in this conversation that's, that's happened within the Catholic church or what's happened in many other congregations is there was that expectation and there was this hope, and, and some, of these, some of these women and men, they're like father and mother figures. And so they're just, they're, it's broken people like me who are looking for something. And all of a sudden, here's an example of consistency, an example of holiness, an example of wholeness, you know? Someone's like, They've, they're ahead of me. And then when you find out they're not, sometimes we just don't know how to compute all of that. And so I think I've just been super practical about it, you know, like, hey, all three of us, we're beautiful and broken. And um, for me, it's more about who are, the, who are the team around me that's helping me in those areas of brokenness. Um, kind of step more into to allow my character to lead the way. Um, so that when I get on stage, it's a reflection of the work I've done, not on the information that I know, if that makes sense.
1: We've known each other for a long time. And I honestly consider you not only a friend, but a mentor. And I, I haven't asked you this question, but I've wanted to, Growing up not knowing your dad and then getting another dad and then having these mentors and then having another mentor and then almost like betrayed is a strong word, but let's say feeling betrayed or given up on or whatever that word is from that mentor, Like, what did that do to you? Well, I mean, I think part
0: of the desert has been helping me make sense of trust issues, you know i mean that's i think it's uh people have uh, been super super kind and some churches have really great churches have offered opportunities for me to to step in and lead or teach or a number of opportunities and i think honestly i'm like um yeah i don't i don't know if i know you well enough so i think i've like i've been a little like gun shy of like just jumping into something cuz um i think when that has been kind of um broken, um, it's hard to just muster that up and just give that away. And so I think part of me is wanting to do some work on that. I think too is part of when there's moments of betrayal or abuse, um, or you're dealing with like narcissism or sociopath or struggle, like any, for, for many of the listeners who have gone through something, some kind of trauma one of the hardest things that you have to do is untangle, untangle things that you thought were true that aren't true about yourself, about an organization, about a, a story. Like, And then there's things that you were told that were untrue that are actually true. So you're almost having to go back and rewrite history and go, that's not true. Oh, that's true. Oh, that was said to me. So that I'd get off. oh, And that has been um, really, really crazy. Now, let me go full circle with Chuck. So Chuck remarries. And um, she has a daughter. And the daughter, like, remembers playing with me. She's probably eight or nine years older than I am. Um, I'm two. She's probably nine, ten. So... Fast forward, like I just disappeared. Like I, I never see. It. And she just, I think one day was like, I wonder who that Steve kid is. Like, I wonder what he's up to. So finds me on Facebook or Instagram and sends it to her mom and goes, You won't believe it. Look at this guy. He looks just like Chuck. Now, when I had gotten married, on my wedding night, my parents split, which I would not recommend for any of our listeners. Like, don't, don't do that. Um, so my parents split. It's crazy. So I feel like, oh, now's the time I can find Chuck. We hire a private investigator. We find out he lives in upstate New York. I find his address. I'm just gonna show up. I'm like, 24? Hey man, here I am. Um, I'm just gonna show up. Three days before, the private investigator calls and says, So sorry. He actually died two years early of a massive heart attack. And I'm like, what? So I show up to the house, still knocking the door. Nobody answers. And we go to the cemetery, my wife and I, and we just walk around a cemetery. And I find a tombstone 20 minutes in that says Charles Franklin Bourne. And I meet my dad. Now, fast forward seven years, I get this email out of the blue from his wife, from his widow. And just it tells me the story of like his, her daughter like finding me and and I start having these questions back. I'm like, oh my goodness, like five questions like, how did he die? Did he ever think of me? Did he know Christ? What was he like? You know, just just kind of trying to figure out these pieces. And we end up like starting these conversations. And I ended up going to see her in Providence, Rhode Island last year and have this amazing conversation. She's telling me stories about this guy. And then she says, hey, when he signed those adoption papers, he thought he was just signing the financial side off. He didn't think he was never going to see you again. So we show up to your house to pick you up because we have rights for you for that christmas and you're not there and all of a sudden i'm like wait wait what and i begin to realize we moved to ventura county and starts this whole conversation i go to my dad and my dad's like yeah this is that's kind of what happened and and she said chuck finally found you because there's no internet there's no like cell phones you just disappeared and he finds you when you're nine but he's like, I don't want to just show up because I'm like, I don't know if this kid's going to know who I am and I don't want to mess, mess this kid up. So in my mind, the story I had told was he bailed on me. But in reality, that's not the story. But I had created this whole thing around achievement and performance. I say all that in going, part of this is untangling and having to rewrite the history, but then also rewrite the story of um, and take a real reflection on my beauty, my brokenness, and the beauty and the brokenness around me so that I can kind of step into true, authentic health and honest conversations. And it's it's I don't have muscles for it. I'll just say that. And so it's all brand new. It's all new. And if I didn't have Christ and if I didn't have the text, I think, uh, I'm not sure where I would be, but I just keep sensing God and short little prayers that I pray. Like, Lord, just father me through this. Like, just help me. Like, what's the next best right step? And just how do I be kind to myself today and kind to others? What do I need to like let go of to grab hold more of love and grace and peace? It's just simple truths. Um, but man, it's it. this has been a year or two that I, uh, never saw coming, and I would just say this like I came here with the most the lowest expectations possible, and I absolutely love being here like I hike pretty much every day and i and I just say that there's something here like there's just something in the quiet and it's a bizarre beauty here, but I feel like it is the ground of preparation um and that's like that's what the desert does. people come here to heal and then they and the and the great biblical story is like Egypt, the desert, the promised land. And, you know, I I remember spending time with a rabbi once and just asking him all these questions. And he's like, you know, most of you Americans think you spend the rest of your life, most of your life in the promised land. He's like, not us. We believe most of our life is in the desert. And I think, I think that's just, we're not used to learning how to live there in this season of waiting, feeling deserted, feeling forsaken, feeling unknown. Like, and that's kind of like the gift of COVID-19, because everybody, like you said, is just in this slowdown season. Um, but I think it's also some great inter- internal um, work that I think will have great eternal um, potential in the in the seasons to come. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in man it's always a little vulnerable when you have just shared your story but seriously uh it's been powerful to see the response and how many of you have resonated with what sam ponder shared a couple weeks ago in regards to her story or what Ocho shared last week And we're on Twitter, at Home Team Pod, or on Instagram, at Home Team underscore pod. We'd love to hear from you, interact with you. Um, And if you've enjoyed this podcast, um, please go to iTunes, uh, rate, review, um, spread the word. Um, We love getting the chance to kind of speak um, what we're learning, and hopefully it continues to bless you. Hope you guys have a great, great week. We'll see you next week on the Home Team Podcast. Grace and peace.